From the stables in Milton Keynes, home to world-class music, entertainment, if Milton Keynes International Festival, and a whole lot more besides. This is Turn Up The Volume with your host, Nick Coffer. Really lovely to have you along for episode two of Turn Up The Volume from the Stables. And to say this episode is packed with amazing artists is an understatement. We'll hear from Ollie Knights, lead singer of one of my all-time favourite bands, Turin Breaks, ahead of their appearance at IF Milton Keynes International Festival, which of course is organised and curated by the Stables. Ollie talked to us about being back on the road. We feel well-oiled again now, but after COVID it felt extremely scary and strange to not have played for so long. And there was a few times where I was like, are we actually going to be able to do this? Like, is, is it still going to work, you know? But I'm glad to say it, it, it did. It's, it's like riding a bike. Once you've done enough of it, it, it's always in there. We'll hear the story behind their gorgeous new album, Wide-Eyed Nowhere. And Ollie will play us an exclusive and really beautiful acoustic version of No Rainbow from that album. Singer-songwriter Harriet opens up about her new album, The Outcome, an album which talks a lot about managing perfectionism and anxiety. Harriet takes us behind the mask of being an artist. I'm a professional performer. I'm really good at putting on a face and even though inside I'm crumbling, just like lighting up and going out and putting on my best outfit and my highest heels and lipstick and like, yeah, I'm ready to go. And we'll hear a live version of Burn from that lovely album. And talking of live, is there a better live performer than Ragu Dixit? I'm not sure there is. He is an astounding force of nature. I get asked the same question here in India. It's like, how is it to perform in British music festivals? Do they really understand what you singing I said I don't know if they understand but they get me. Ragu also performs the most beautiful version of No Man Will Ever Love You Like I Do exclusively for Turn Up The Volume and completing the quartet one of country music's most enduring voices Laura Cantrell will hear a track from her album too an album which was many years in the making which nearly got derailed by a global pandemic which arrived well a matter of days after she launched a crowdfunder to help record it. Just sit back and enjoy these wonderful artists on this latest episode of Turn Up The Volume from the stables in Milton Keynes. Great local venue, small, perfectly formed, great atmosphere. There's something really different and it's really local. It's just such a cosy, intimate environment. I get to see bands that I first saw 50 years ago. Great eclectic mix of music and a really lovely community. So much to get through, let's go straight to the artists. Turin Breaks are bringing their legendary live show to the Spiegel Tent at If Milton Keynes International Festival in July. They've been making consistently glorious indie pop music for over 20 years building up the most loyal of live followings along the way. Their new album, Wide-Eyed Nowhere, takes them almost full circle, with strong echoes of their very first album, The Optimist, a blissful collection of perfectly crafted songs. Let's hear from their lead singer, Ollie Knights. In a bit, you can hear him sing an exclusive acoustic version of No Rainbow from the new album. But first he told me about how it all came about, recorded in the exact same place he was talking to me from, the studio at the end of his back garden. So we recorded the record in my home studio, which we've never used to actually record a kind of final record in. We've always used it as rehearsal space, um, writing space, and and maybe pre-production sort of stuff. But we'd never used it as, as the final thing, mostly because we like making records that feel like... Um, experiences for us as a band like we want to be able to remember making a record because that's when we went to that studio and stayed in that place and worked with that person that's a massive part of it um but because of covid and and all the 
sort of covid related things we were even though it was after lockdowns and all that when we made it so we could have made it in a in a commercial studio i think we were just all we'd sort of gotten used to that thing of being at home a lot more and um we just decided to kind of use it and thought well that's a great way for us to make a different sounding record to the last bunch because the last bunch we'd made in at rockfield and which is a commercial studio with a very specific vibe um and we thought let's make something the the demos i'd written sounded more chilled and they had a sort of homely vibe about them i'd recorded them all on a on a cassette four track up in my my loft bedroom up in the top of the house just to kind of get away from everything and so they had this you know kind of early 90s demo vibe to them which they sounded like the demos i used to make when i was a kid and we thought okay that's actually informing the the music and and the songs in a strange way so we sort of kept that by by making the record in my studio at home and and just so which meant we could hang out in the garden and just be out in the because we made it over the summer so it was really lovely and uh, we it was just such a nice thing like i'd be sitting in my studio recording ed do a bass part and then we'd look out the window and there's gail and rob sitting in the sun having a cup of tea and the dog wandering about and it was just very very homely it's interesting you mentioned that sort of uh, late 90s sound because on listening to the album it took me back to the optimist and it felt that it was actually recorded in a similar way and i know that when you then went on to do ether song and and tony hoffer produced you and you then went to a more live sound a, a, a live band sound which of course is what you would have done at rockfield because you go there yeah. and you're spending hundreds of pounds a day and you've only got i don't know five ten fifteen days to to knock out your album and so you do record it as a group am i right in saying that this album does almost reflect what you did at the start that that notion of of layering up sound and creating less of that aspect of of playing live as a group yeah um we definitely made this record in a very similar way to the way we made the first record because we'd that first record we'd we what we started off often getting was just a drum take so like a vibey drum take which we do we'd all be playing along but not not really recording what the rest of us were doing particularly we were just kind of doing guides so that um uh, it uh, the drummer in the, in, uh, in the case of the new record it was rob playing um we he he could get a kind of feeling of the live performance but then we'd work on each layer after that separately uh, and we hadn't really made a record like that for quite a few years we we made our first album like that and i think our our third album we made like that other than that most of the records we've made have been kind of as live as you can possibly sort of muster at the time you know often with live main vocal everything live and then you'd maybe add a few harmonies or a few bits of percussion afterwards but it was mostly live because that captures just you you can't recreate that energy it's amazing uh to, to to make a record like that but it's also very it's like a black and white photograph if it feels like to me whereas sometimes you want to do you want to make a record that's like super colorful and 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 rich and that's when you can use kind of you know multi-tracking and 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 time as well like that's the the other great thing about working at home and it not being expensive we had three months to 
realize that you know something wasn't quite right and we'd fit we'd do this and change something or i'd i'd wake up one morning and be like man i really want to hear like a weird old drum machine start this song off you know so so i'd i'd find something and put it in and send it to the guys you know and and so we made this record in that way and and so it was put together in in many ways like the first record but then had a lot more time than we had on the first record as well I wonder whether also it's a sign of of confidence. I'm not going to say old age, Ollie, but but the the band is is a mature band, and and I wonder whether it is a sign of confidence because when you're recording an album in that live format, it's what you know. We know how amazing you are as a live band. It is why one of the reasons we love you so much, um, and it's it's where you're comfortable. So actually stepping out of that and really recording an album based on minutiae and on fine detail. That for me is a sign of a band who's really confident and comfortable where it's at. Yeah, it, it was. Um, it's funny because we we do these days. We we I guess we have a good, hopefully a very good live reputation, and that's kind of what I guess that's what drives the fan base a lot of the time is the live shows uh, um, being a sort of a particular experience for people. But um, when whenever we make a record, it's like you've got to somehow find new ground at least for yourself because you you just wouldn't be able to carry on I don't think we could carry on if it didn't feel like that every time and so the quickest way to do that is to take a bit of a wild leap into the dark so for us it was well what 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 are we comfortable doing we're comfortable setting up as a live band and using that muscle that that's very developed with us is it a muscle memory is, it, is that what it is it is literally what you know i think so yeah because we've certainly done our 10,000 hours together you know we we, we really are a, a sort of machine in some ways when we come together because we've just done it so much under so much pressure and different circumstances in different sort of ways you just you you do become like a sort of a a team a sports team you know a musical sports team um and the thing is is that's great if you want to sort of like know what's going to happen but cre- creativity i w- i think it probably comes from when you don't really know what's going to happen uh and you're sort of riffing with reality you know it's happening there and then and you're not quite, you're not actually sure what you're doing um so for us to to make a different record something that felt felt current and new and like new ground um we we needed to do something that we, we were less comfortable with and that that was actually working not live you know and having to work in that 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 different way of making a record and and it, it conjured up we knew we sort of felt like that will guarantee that we go somewhere new and, and it did it's interesting hearing you talk about uh, doing something new because it, it is a tricky balance on the one hand you're you're touring the full album of ether song 20th anniversary this year uh, you must have days where you think are we actually playing this song again and and others where you have to realize that without these songs people like me wouldn't know and love you and it's almost like you don't get to choose these songs belong to us in a way and i speak as a fan and we want to hear them it's a juggling act isn't it yeah it is um i mean i i can see that it's a funny thing actually i i've i spoke to someone recently i think it was on i've been on twitter who was sort of who I think they'd said something like how how the hell do bands kind of keep doing the same songs over and over again for years it would drive me insane and I and I I replied and I said actually you know what 
it never feels in our case in my case it never feels the same and i i it sounds ridiculous really because it how could it not feel the same but it never does um every single audience has its has its own feeling about it every single night and you're never the same twice and you the songs are never the same twice they're more like for me they're more like they're just blueprints you know they're just like something you can a vehicle that you can sort of sit inside but it's even if it's even if you're going down the same road the weather's different or you, you feel slightly different and that allows you to express the song slightly differently so you get a slightly different reaction yes these are all very fine layers of of difference but it's never the same twice um i think that's something we we've, we've learned over the over the years even if we wanted it to be exactly the same there's not a chance it's almost like you've done this live thing before ollie but i wonder <laughs> whether also you're you're a bit out of practice i mean as a band for whom your live shows have been absolutely at your core um, yeah, the, the connection you've got with your fans. You had to go through a long period without being able to play. And I know you, you did a few festivals last year, but is there a part of you that does actually feel a little bit like a newbie, that you, you're going back out again and you are perhaps a little bit rusty? Um, it definitely happens. Like if we, I mean, over COVID, we, we, we'd ne- we hadn't had more than six months probably between shows in 20 years. And then suddenly we had like, two years or something and that was terrifying that was terrifying but actually we've we've built up now we've sort of we've done enough bits and bobs um and and a a fairly recent sort of fairly hefty tour we feel well oiled again now but after covid it felt extremely scary and strange to not have played for so long and there was a few times where i was like are we actually going to be able to do this like is is it still going to work you know um but i'm glad to say it, it it did it's it's like you know it's like riding a bike as they say once you've done enough of it it's it's always in there also on a personal level is it a bit terrifying for you i mean i've i've known you guys quite a long time i've interviewed you on many an occasion and and i don't think i'm revealing any trade secrets here to say that you're pretty much a an introvert i'd even go as far as to say a bit shy and then you have to go into the spotlight and be an entertainer Do, does that terrify you it is an absurd life I've chosen for myself. I mean, I, I laugh about it with my family and my kids all the time because they, my kids know that I am like definitely a pretty extreme introvert. And, and I think they scratch their heads sometimes. I think you're going to go and play to people at Shepherd's Bush Empire to 1500 <laughs> people. Uh, Dad, you don't even like you don't even like talking to the neighbours like that. That's and that's that exhausts you. What's wrong with you? Well, or talking to uh, your own kids? Yeah, yeah, totally. And um, it's funny. It is it is crazy. I always say I'm I'm like ninety percent introvert and maybe ten percent extrovert, and and that ten percent gets massively exercised during shows, um, and it's it's probably has taken its toll over the years i do find it particularly exhausting and i do find that it mentally exhausting uh be it sort of being at the front of the band you know it again that was sort of by accident i never had a desire to be a front man at all (laughs) um i'd have been much happier i think just skulking about slightly behind the scenes you know i just happened to have a voice and an ability to write songs and these things sort of seem to create 
my life for me by myself you know i didn't i didn't didn't set it up like that so i f- often find myself getting myself into trouble and sort of have it and and finding myself in situations where i'm extremely uncomfortable i've learned to appreciate them as well those moments because if i didn't have that i really would just live in a cave and that's probably not very good uh, for anyone Look, I reckon if we lined up 100 great artists, 98 or 99 of them would have exactly the same introvert-extrovert split as you, probably 90-10, some of them even 95-5, but it's that uh, 5 or 10% that pushes you on stage. And I'm going to do exactly that now, Ollie. I'm going to uh, tap into your 10% because I'm going to ask you to sing for us. What are you going to do? Um, so I'll play, I think I'll play a solo version of No Rainbow, which is the final track on the new album and probably my favourite song on the new album.
Solly Knight singing No Rainbow off Turing Break's latest album, Wide-Eyed Nowhere. They're playing the Spiegel Tent at If Milton Keynes International Festival on July the 27th. Tickets available from stables.org. They're also out on tour this year playing their second album, Ether Song, in full at a number of venues across the UK. More info about all their shows and music can be found at turingbreaks.com and you can follow them on social media at Turing Breaks on Twitter and at Turing Breaks Official on Facebook and Instagram. Talking of social media, just a quick note about reviews for this podcast. We had so many lovely comments from you for our first episode across social media. If you're enjoying the series, it would really help spread the word if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And while you're there, don't forget to click on follow to be notified of all future episodes of Turn Up The Volume. Ragu Dixit playing live for us very shortly, and we'll hear from Alison Young, Head of Programming at The Stables, with her personal recommendations for what you should go and see in June at the venue. First, singer-songwriter Harriet. A gorgeous voice and fine songwriting craft are the hallmarks of this London-based singer. Her new album, The Outcome, takes her in many new directions, with echoes of Fleetwood Mac and even ABBA woven throughout an immaculate piece of singer-songwriting. She's coming to The Stables on June the 10th, and when I caught up with her from her home in South London, she was keen to tell me about how much she'd opened up personally on this new album and how tricky a place that can be for an artist. This album, I definitely have, um, you know, stripped away a few of the layers that I hadn't before, perhaps previously. Um, and I also, well, accidentally, um, there is a theme that kind of runs through the record, um, which is very much about, um, you know, anxiety and overthinking and, um those things affecting fundamentally decisions that I've made and um, and that kind of thing. Um, because I think that we miss out on a lot of life when we overthink um, and worry too much about what the consequences might be of our of our actions. It's interesting you mentioned that because it, it does feel like an album where where you're trying to let go of of stuff, of of patterns, as you mentioned there, being a perfectionist, of of trying to live more in the moment. But it's also funny to listen to the album because I'm listening to it thinking, yeah, I bet right now you're trying to make this sound as perfect as you possibly can. It's 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 a life <laughs> it's a lifelong battle, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, and there there is a balance, of course. You know, I want I want the record recordings are something that lasts forever so you want it to be as perfect as possible but perfect doesn't necessarily mean perfect in terms of note perfect and everything perfect it's actually just that overall it's exactly what you want um, and that could be that actually it's rough around the edges or you know there's um, some little blips in there but they make up the perfectness of the song what, what enabled you to open up this time round in this way compared to previously? I think, you know, it's the stage I am in my life. You know, my first album was 
was about five, six years ago now. Um, you know, and we had two and a half years of a pandemic in the middle, which, you know, did cause a big loss of momentum for me and a lot of other artists, you know, producing their own music. Um, but also I worked with a lot of different collaborators on this album, um, lots of different producers and songwriters, and that helped me quite a lot um, because each of them I developed different relationships with and they brought out different things in me. Um, and I think that's the whole beauty of collaboration is that, you know, not only do you have somebody to bounce ideas off of and to try things out with, um, but you also have somebody to kind of draw parts of yourself out um, which you might not have been able to do on your own. Well, no, actually, I think probably very capable of doing on your own, but maybe just needed a bit of help. And would have done it differently on your own as well. You, you went to Stockholm to, to create the album, of course, Home of Abba, and that, that's no coincidence, is it? No, I mean, I was I am a huge Abba fan. Um, and of course, there are a lot of amazing Swedish exports um, in terms of artists, but also in terms of songwriters and producers. Um, you know, Max Martin basically wrote the soundtrack to my little Harriet childhood, you know, Britney Spears, the Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, you know, all of that lot. That was literally my life as many children, um, I'm sure. And many people can relate who were children at that time, you know, in the, in the 90s and the 2000s. Um, and I actually worked with Jorgen Ellison on this album. We wrote a song called Look What We've Done, which is on the record. Um, and he wrote Sometimes and, you know, Crazy by Britney. And um, that was quite surreal, you know, working with somebody who, you know, was such a big part of that um, era of music, really. Um, he actually told me that Sometimes was about his wife. And then he just started playing it on the guitar. And I was like, what? <laughs> and when you look at what songs are about, I'm minded to ask you that, you know, you look at the songs on this album, they they do feel extremely personal. Are, are they about you? Are they about past loves? Are they about relationship breakups? Or are they just about life? And you're applying them to, to, to songwriting, to, to tell a story, to tell a, a wider story. They are about my own experiences. Um, I would say actually that on this record, there's, there's not many songs that are about romantic relationships. Um, there's maybe one or two, like Heartbreak Holiday and uh, Real. Um, but the others really are, you know, they they might be, they might appear to be about relationships, but for me, they're perhaps about, you know, other relationships, whether it's family members, friends, um, and also you know, relationships, we have relationships with people, with things other than people, you know, we have relationships with our job, with our life, with our choices, um, with where we live, all those things. And, and we can hold on to those things unnecessarily, just like we can relationships with individuals. Um, and so the album, yeah, is my, my first album was very much about that kind of uh, dynamic between, you know, two lovers, two people. Um, but this record is a lot more insular um, in terms of the, the topics that it explores. Um, for example, Story of the Life, which is the title track, sorry, the, the first track on the album. Um, that song I wrote as a kind of letter to my younger self. Um, and, you know, I, I growing up, I was always, and I, I still am, but was very much when I was younger, just really very concerned person <laughs> you know little Harriet was if I've ever was ever little because I'm not little at all um but if I was always so concerned about everyone and 
everything and you know are you okay and oh gosh have I upset you and I've always been that person and and it's really good to be that person you know to care about others it's important that we do as human beings but also it's important to care about ourselves um and not in a selfish way but in a way that actually then enables us to be there for other people um more effectively because we're looking after you know our own mental health um and uh, and how we feel, what we want. It's funny, isn't it? Because we, we grow up thinking being a people pleaser is a good thing. It's a sign of being a kind person and being thoughtful and empathic. But actually, it's also a bit of a curse, isn't it? And then you reach a point in your life when you think that the most important thing is to look after yourself, as you were saying there, because that then enables you to look after others better. The, the notion of people pleasing can be actually really quite unhealthy. Yes, it can. And it's something that I've only really learned in the last few years of my life. Um, I think I've always, you know, drummed, and I I was about to say had it drummed into me, but that's not fair because it's actually very much self-inflicted. I've always believed that I need to take care of everyone um, and that's my role and I want to be there for people and I can't bear somebody going through pain. I've got to fix it. I'm a fixer, solutions person. but yeah, as you say, it can be, well, it, it also fits in the same category as this kind of toxic pos- positivity that's out there. Um, we're very fortunate to now be in a space and time where there is a platform for people to share the bad days as well, you know, and when they're not looking perfect or feeling perfect, um, which is fantastic. But it needs to happen more um, and it needs to spread through the generations um, because you know this idea that we have to be a certain way look a certain way behave a certain way have a certain opinion it's incredibly limiting and exhausting um, it is yeah it's exhausting because you're just performing all the time you know and I'm I'm a professional performer so I'm really good at it I'm really good at putting on a face and even though inside I'm crumbling um you know, just like lighting up and going out and putting on a, putting on my best outfit and my highest heels and lipstick and like, yeah, I'm ready to go. You know, and women are also, we are, we are so, we are so good at this and it's, we're too good at it. Um, too good to the point where sometimes it becomes like a, a default. Um, and that's when you have to be careful. And this is this is why I love doing this podcast. It gives us the chance to to look behind the art, to look behind the music, and remember that artists are vulnerable. They are fragile. Um, they are very exposed, and it's so important to remember the the pain that goes through the creative process and, and how you feel to then put it out there. And as I say, just feel really, really exposed. I guess that ties in with performing live as well. You're coming uh, to the stables on on the tenth of June. Last time round, it was it was quite pared down. It was you and a piano. I know, quite stripped back. Uh, this time round, uh, it's a bit more elaborate, isn't it? What can we expect? It is more elaborate, yeah. I've got my full band um, who have been playing with me live for a long time, but haven't played with me for a long time. So the last time we did a full band, kind of fully produced show was when I released my first album. So it was about, I think the tour was about four or five years, five years ago. Um, yeah, so it's going to be a much more produced show, very different energy to the last tour. Um, and I'm very nervous about it. <laughs> Maybe because there's so many elements I can't control, Nick, with this one. 
Um, I have to really my my trust um, superpower is really being tested. Um, I'm a terrible delegator and uh, I'm a complete control freak. So uh, there's suddenly all these elements that I have to to consider and that could go wrong. But you know what? I've just got to focus on doing my bit. And if I sing a terrible note or I make a mistake, that's fine. I'm enough. <laughs> I'm allowed to do that. That's that's cool. Um, uh, but if anything else goes wrong, it's out of my control. What can I do? Um, but I'm so excited. Uh, the outcome is out now. Uh, it's a really, really lovely listen. Um, it, it's it's a real advance, actually, because whereas previously it was quite easy to to define you as, I don't know, perhaps a bit Karen Carpenter-esque or, you know, we, we had very clear lines. This album is very diverse. Even the first few bars, when, 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 when you turn the album on, you get story of your life. And it actually shocked me because it's like glistening 90s pop. It's, it's a completely new sound. And, and the whole album is very rich, very layered, uh, loads of inspiration. And it, it's, it's a really lovely listen. So that's out now, uh, obviously streaming uh, in all the usual places. Tickets for Harriet on Saturday the 10th of June, of course, available at stables.org. And the best place to keep up with you online, Harriet, is where? So it would be my website, which is harrietsmusic.com. Um, and then I'm on Instagram at Harriet Sings and Facebook and Twitter as Harriet's music. And what better way to uh, get a taste of what you'll bring to the stables in June than to hear you singing live? Uh, you've given me a lovely recording of one of the tracks on the album. Just, just talk me through it. So this is a recording of Burn, um, which is just uh, myself and um, Scott Hayes, my pianist, who I toured with last year. Um, and this song is very special to me. Um, it's about you know, all the weight that we carry around on our shoulders that if only we could get let go of, we would actually be a lot lighter and freer um, to just live. So it's very much in keeping with the conversation we've actually just had, Nick. Um, and this was recorded in London. Harriet, as always, it's been lovely to chat to you. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. Lovely, lovely to speak to you. I've got this weight upon my shoulders I don't know why Oh, who it's for For as long as I can remember I've been too hard, too hard on myself Now let it burn, burn, burn Let it burn Let it burn, burn, burn Let it burn Put my troubles on the fire Make me feel a little lighter All this hurt just let it burn I'm gonna change And turn a corner I'm not afraid Of what I'll see It really hurts To tear the surface But it's me that's underneath So let it burn, burn, burn Let it burn let it burn, 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 let it burn Put my troubles on the fire Make me feel a little lighter All this hurt Just let it burn When it seems like I've got no one on my side And every day feels like the middle of the night Sometimes I carry things I should have left behind But I know I'll be alright Yeah, I know I'll be alright 
Let it burn, burn, burn. Let it burn. Let it burn, burn, burn. Let it burn. Put my troubles on the fire. Make me feel a little lighter. All this hurt. Just let it burn. Let it burn, burn, burn. Let it burn. Let it burn, burn, burn. Let it burn. Put my troubles on the fire. Make me feel a little lighter. All this hurt. Just let it burn. All this hurt. Just let it burn. As we said, there, Harriet will be at the stables on June the tenth. Tickets can be found at stables.org. Ragu Dixit on his way, but first, if you fancy discovering some new artists at the stables, here's head of programming Alison Young with her recommendations for June. Coming up in June at the stables in Milton Keynes. This month, I'm going to focus on artists playing Stage 2, our smaller 80-cap venue, which is situated within the oldest bit of the building, the original stable block for the old rectory, and dates back to 1858. Who knew that nearly 150 years later, this bit of the building would take on a new lease of life when Stage 2 opened in 2007? In this space, we often champion emerging artists at an earlier stage of their careers. And there are a few people out there who are lucky enough to have seen American artists such as Rhiannon Giddens, who incidentally has just scooped a Pulitzer Prize, and Grammy Award folk nominee Gregory Allen Isakoff in this most intimate of spaces together with comedians such as Sarah Millican, Jack Whitehall, Russell Kane and Catherine Ryan. So, on to the here and now. This June we have another amazing American artist returning to our shores on stage two in a trio format. Kashona Armstrong effortlessly blends folk, soul, gospel and R&B with thought-provoking and powerful lyrics. Maybe no surprise that she started out as a music therapist writing her first songs with her patients. And now, alongside her songwriting and performing career, she also runs a not-for-profit organisation called Your Song, which offers songwriting programmes for a range of community organisations. Last month was all about Eurovision, but at the stables we continue the vibe with a debut performance from the UK's 2018 entrant Suri. Eurovision fans might recognise her song Storm and remember the stage invasion during her performance. She recovered brilliantly and managed to complete the song. Anywho, a world away from that and Suri has just released a new album called Building a Woman and her stage two appearance is a chance to hear a stripped back performance with piano and glorious vocals. Check out her live cover version of Prince's Sometimes It Snows in April on the Stables website. That's it for this month. See you next time. For more information, head over to stables.org where you can also find out how you can help by becoming a friend of the Stables, volunteering or making a donation to the charity. To follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram or YouTube, just search for Stables MK. I love this next artist. As I said right at the start of this episode, you may struggle to find a better live performer than Ragu Dixit. He sings in three languages, straddles musical genres and continents, and has an ability to connect with audiences, which is pretty much second to none. He's also just the loveliest chap, as I discovered when I chatted to him from his home city of Bangalore. In a short while, you can hear him sing a wonderful exclusive acoustic version of No Man Will Ever Love You Like I Do. But first, I asked Ragu to take us right to the heart of Bangalore a place he's bursting with pride about. Welcome to my city, Bangalore. It's the it's also called Bengaluru in the local lingo. 
Uh, it's the capital city of my state, Karnataka, down south in India. And it's one of the most vibrant cities in the country and probably tr the truest representation of what India is today. It's, it's holding on to its traditions, but at the same time, since it's the IT capital of the country, we have people from all around the country and, of course, all around the world coming down and it's kind of mixed melting pot of cultures uh, coming together. So I think uh, somewhere you have foods from all over the country from and around the world. You have Japanese restaurants, then you have uh, jazz clubs, you have uh, incredible performance venues. So it's one of the happiest cities in the country. Yes, it's awfully populated and the traffic jams are intolerable. But at the same time, People are very happy here, and and uh, the local people, especially uh, the Kannada-speaking people, are extremely welcoming and extremely warm. And I'm very proud of where I'm where I come from. Yeah, and it's this pride which comes through in your music and in your live performances. It's interesting because when you were growing up, um, you were very much only exposed to to local culture and local music. You you weren't exposed to to Western music or even Western culture very much at all, were you? No, actually, I grew up in a very orthodox, uh, traditional uh, South Indian family, and uh, the emphasis was to learn classical art forms. So I was pushed into learning dance, which I joined reluctantly, but eventually started liking it. And I learned traditional art form called Bharatnatyam. It's, it's a South Indian dance form for 16 years and I almost took up dance as a profession but at the same time I was also a good student so my mother kind of posed a question as to you know why waste so much of education for dance so I ended up being a scientist temporarily in the middle of it all I, I used to play the guitar and then by the time I was 20 I think I was exposed to a lot of western music that was heard by most of my classmates in college and that's how I got introduced to western music and it crept into my music eventually. Do you remember that moment when you when you first came across? I mean, the artists you love like Sting or Pink Floyd, Dire Straits. I think I think even Metallica was a was a favorite of yours. Do you, do you remember a moment when you, your head just went, "Wow!" Yeah, it was Phil Collins actually. <laughs> so <laughs> Phil Collins singing "Another Day in Paradise." It, there was a small capsule of the Grammy Awards at that time, and the nominations were being announced, and there was a small capsule being aired on an Indian national television, and that's when I first heard that song and I was hooked onto it. The sound was just beautiful. I remember watching it in my neighbor's house because I didn't have a television back then. Uh, nor did I have a tape recorder, but I, I remember this song vividly and, and that moment where I felt I should listen to it. And then, of course, my college friends introduced me to Metallica, Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses was the first hard rock band I ever listened to. And I was wondering, how do people conceive this as music? Uh, and then... I, of course, started love, loving it, the, the hard rock part of it. And now now your live band has some amazing electric guitarists in it, so, so yes. you clearly embraced it. Oh, yes. I eventually did get uh, kind of attracted towards rock music a lot, and then classic rock especially. And I think from Led Zeppelin to Black Sabbath to ACDC, everyone became my friends to my ears, mm -hmm. and, and, and I kept listening to it for a long time during my growing up years. And... Yeah, like I said, it's very. It's only natural that I brought the traditional classical music, which I grew up with as a dancer, though I didn't learn classical music formally, uh, and the rock part of my upbringing that 
was influenced by my friends to come together eventually when I started making music. So I like it, the core to be Indian and especially Indian folk music, uh, but drive it a little hard through electric guitars and drums and bass. <laughs> and I'm intrigued by by this crossover, actually, because it's it's very much at the heart of what you do, as, as you say. you One of the, the really beautiful things you do is you, you bridge the gap between cultures. You, you move effortlessly between styles. And there must have been a moment when you realised that musical differences are, in fact, strengths, and also that perhaps music from different parts of the world actually has way more similarities than we even realise. The emotions are extremely similar uh, and that's why probably music brings people from all around the world together as one when they are listening to a, an artist on stage there is absolutely no for once all the barriers all the walls melt when when an artist is performing and people come together as one and 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 that's the power of music because the underlying emotions no matter where you are who you are which country you're from which culture you're from it's all the same we all feel the same love, we all feel the same pain, we all feel, feel the same heartbreak and anger and jealousy, etc., etc., etc. So we all end up relating, and music is just an expression of our emotions, after all, at the end of the day. So I find that amazing that no matter where you're from, you can still borrow styles and, and uh, cultures from any part of the world and mix it with yours and call yourself original. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and what I find amazing is that you sing in three languages. So you sing in Hindi, English uh, and Canada. Yes. And your music is rooted in classical Carnatic tradition as well as Western folk. And yet when I watch you, I'm not left thinking about the language that you are singing in, or indeed the style you're playing in. I'm simply left enjoying the inclusiveness, the universality of a great song, a great hook, a great riff. And this is what makes you and your band such a compelling watch, isn't it? Well, that's your review, and I'm very glad to hear that. <laughs> uh, I always wonder, I always wonder how, why am I so fortunate that I end up performing on this, uh, to a foreign audience, and yet uh, it's the, the experience is the same as performing for my local crowd at home. And, and I find absolutely no difference in the way the crowd responds to my music. And then I get asked the question, same question here in India. It's like, how is it to perform in, in British music festivals? Do they really understand what you're singing? I said, I don't know if they understand, but they get me. And, and I find that quite intriguing to, to like, what is it that is making me get so connected with, with the audiences, you know, despite the language barrier? And like I just explained earlier, it is, I think, the underlying emotions. And, and I take, do take pride in explaining what my songs are all about before performing. I, I do get scolded by my manager that I waste time. I could probably insert an extra song in my set list instead of speaking so much. But I feel it's in a very, very important for me to convey the message behind each of these songs. Some of them written a couple of centuries ago, uh, written by saint poets who wrote some extremely brilliant wisdom that probably is more relevant today in today's world than ever before. So I do take it a time. I, I think once I explain and then, then I perform the song, they, they really get connected with the emotion of the song yeah and this is why watching you live it reminds me of um, artists like you know bruce springsteen when he did the the seager sessions with that big 20-piece band and he talks as much as you do by the way he could well talk <laughs> he, he could well talk less between tracks um and bands uh, artists like manu chow and manu negro who 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 combine so many different uh, cultural styles and cultural references and the link between all three of you if i can link you with springsteen and, and uh, manu chow as well is is this notion of of connection 
Uh, this notion of crossing cultural, artistic, musical boundaries and, and finding that connection. And, and this mirror of the audience's joy is, is very much rooted in your dance education that you mentioned earlier on. It, it, it's this con- concept of, now, am I pronouncing this right? Razothpati, have I got that right? Yeah, Razothpati. Tell me about it. Razothpati is a concept uh, that is uh, explained in the Indian texts of classical dancing and it's applicable across dance and theatre. And I, I com- somehow feel... It can be applied to any art for that matter. Rasodpati is, is made of two words, rasa and utpati. Rasa means emotion, utpati means to produce. So the art of invoking that emotion in the audience uh, is the very foundation of any artist to perform on stage. Uh, so, for example, if I'm singing a love song, let it be as cheesy as it can be, uh, and, but it could be a personal experience or it could be something that I imagine and I'm performing. And when I'm singing that, I'm probably imagining something that is there in my head about what I'm singing about or it could be actually a life experience that I'm singing about. And it is very personal. It's very, very, what do you say? Only I know the intensity of that emotion. But at the same time, if you're singing with so much conviction, the audience kind of thinks of his own love and he uses that song that's hitting his ears as background score for his own experience of whatever incident has happened in his life, of his own experience. And suddenly he thinks that the song was written for him or her. And, and that's, that invokes that person's emotion completely different from mine but somehow they're the, they are the same and we get connected and you're feeding off each other aren't you because exactly. they're, they're the mirror of you you're the mirror of them and that's where the energy comes from perfect that's exactly the concept of Rasatpati's and I, I think I, I imbibed that very young in life so when I sing I, I automatically almost always close my eyes and sing because I just get drawn into my own Experience. And I must tell you the secret out, I think I've said this in very few interviews, that every song of mine is a personal experience. It's, it's never, I, I'm very bad at imagination. So that's why I probably also write so less. <laughs> uh, so I have to wait for that experience to hit me and then and invoke that emotion in me that it compels me to write a song about it. Listen, you're coming to the stables, which is why you're here. Um, it's going to be fantastic to have you on the on the main stage at the stables on the 28th of June. Tickets, of course, available at stables.org. I can personally uh, recommend going to see Ragu because it is quite a sight. There's a wonderful, almost, it's almost a spiritual experience, I would say. Um, he is phenomenal live. Uh, so go seek out those tickets at stables.org. But I tell you what, for anyone who's not heard you sing or heard you sing live, um, and just as a little note, there are loads of amazing performances on YouTube. If you want to see what, what Ragu's like and, and him and his his crew, him and his band, just go to YouTube. There's a lot of uh, really good footage there. But uh, you're going to sing us a song from your, your studio in Bangalore. What are you going to do for us, Ragu? Oh, well, the f- most familiar song in the UK from my band is is the song that which uh, probably has a line in English. And that's why I think it was an instant hit <laughs> when we performed this particular song for the first time on Later with Jules Holland in 2011. And, and our website crashed that evening. Uh, I still remember struggling to get it up again. And uh, yeah, this is a song called No Man Will Ever Love You Like I Do.
Absolutely brilliant. And if you then multiply that by eight or ten, you start to get a sense of what Ragu Dixit Project will be like at the stables on uh, June the 28th. Ragu, this has been an absolute joy. We're so grateful to have you on uh, Turn Up the Volume here for the stables. Looking forward to welcoming you on stage as well. If anyone wants to catch up with what you're up to, you're very active online and on social media, aren't you? Where are the best places to find you? Instagram, uh, that's the best place. I reply almost to every message I get. I get so much love there, so I am quite active on Instagram. But otherwise, anywhere else, so even Facebook or YouTube, I, I'm quite active. I, I reply to every message I get, yes. Well, if you want to see uh, a man who is rooted in microbiology <laughs> and uh, the finest uh, traditions of Indian dance and music, Raghu Dixit at the stables uh, June the 28th. Raghu, it's been so great to chat to you. Thank you so much, Nick. I'll see you there in Milton Keynes. He's just such a, a generous and lovely man. I found myself smiling throughout that whole interview. 
And you absolutely must go and see him when he brings his band to the stables on Wednesday, the 28th of June. It'll be a real treat. From the stables in Milton Keynes, this is Turn Up The Volume. Finally on this episode of Turn Up The Volume, Laura Cantrell, one of country music's most endearing and enduring artists, long championed by Bob Harris. Laura's back after a long break with Just Like A Rose, the anniversary sessions, a sparkling album to mark 20 years in the industry. Recorded with many friends and greats from the country music scene, it survived the pandemic and is a real testament to her immaculate songwriting and passion for country music. June 28th, you can see Laura at the stables and she spoke to me from Jackson Heights in Queens, a suburb which saw the worst of the early days of the pandemic in New York, a pandemic which very nearly scuppered Laura's plans for a return to the recording studio. She takes up the story. So in 2019, I had been turning over in my mind, how do we celebrate this 20th anniversary? You know, I I wanted to do something that was not just making a new album and calling it the anniversary album. I really wanted to celebrate in some kind of way. And so I had this idea kind of emerge of doing um, digital singles and recording with different people in different places that have been significant to my music life. And it seemed like a really cool idea. <laughs> and we were going to, you know, crowdfund it and launched all of it. I-, I think we'd been aiming to start it in 2019, uh, but had for various reasons, you know, got delayed into the first quarter of of uh, 2020. And so we opened that crowdfunding on March 1st. And um, as you say, the, the uh, you know, times changed very quickly, right? in just the days after we started that project. Um, so, you know, it didn't go as planned, although I was very aware along the way. I, I live in Jackson Heights in Queens in New York, and we were one of the first, um, our local hospital, Elmhurst Hospital, was one of the first epicenters of the pandemic in New York City. And so we were well aware from the site. You could hear the sirens going to the hospital like all day, every day of the um, this larger, you know, world event happening, unfolding right around us. And it put some things in perspective. Um, you know, in some ways I was like, you know, you, you get frustrated and we've just finally gotten prepared and to be out in public and trying to, you know, move forward with this art project. But you realize also like that, that, um, you know, there were many more important things, you know, that needed to be addressed. And so uh, I just was like, well, the time will emerge that this, it, you know, makes sense to pick this up again. Did the pandemic colour the album or, or did you end up producing, writing, creating the album you'd always imagined in, in 2018 and 2019? Well, the, the, the idea of the record was to sort of have some spontaneity built into it. So it, because of the pandemic itself made doing things spontaneously difficult. Um, so, you know, you couldn't just decide, okay, we're going to go to Chicago and record with a band that I knew there and do a gig. You know, that was kind of what I was hoping it would be like. And so all of that ability to travel freely and to sort of um, gather with groups of people that you aren't, that aren't in your bubble, <laughs> you know, all of that was um, limited, especially early on. Um, so we had to kind of be more, um, you know, more sort of thought through in advance um, how it would work. And so it meant we worked mostly in Nashville and here locally in the New York City area. I worked in a studio in New Jersey just outside of uh, the Lincoln Tunnel. Um, but after we adjusted to those realities, um, the rest of the sort of celebratory nature, the happy accidents, the getting the 
light bulb to call this person at the last minute to see if they might be available to come and would feel comfortable to come to the studio, that still was able to happen. And so um, some things like, um, you know, ending up recording in Nashville with Rosie Flores um, and then having her bring in Ed Stasium uh, to, you know, mix and, and do like the, the post-production on the songs that we did together. You know, working with Rosie was something intentional that I had asked her to join. Uh, but then watching her put the band together and, and you know, invite Kenny Vaughn from Marty Stewart's Fabulous Superlatives to come, like all of that was, you know, unfolded in the moment in a very spontaneous way. So, you know, we, we managed to, in these sort of little bursts of time, still get that celebratory and kind of unexpected experience where you, you know, just feel the joy of making music in a spontaneous way. And the album displays that. It also uh, has a, a retrospective feel, uh, perhaps uh, trying to draw together all the, the many musical and personal strands of, of the last 20 years and, and more. Uh, let's hear a track. What have you got for us? Well, I'd love for you guys to hear this one that we worked on in Nashville with Paul Birch, who's a wonderful songwriter and producer, and he has his own studio um, and an amazing band, his band, the, the WPA Ball Club. <laughs> Um, which are some music luminaries from Nashville. Um, I'm not sure if your your audience will be familiar with them, but Dennis Crouch, this upright bass player, has played with you know everybody from Diana Krall to lots of country artists, lots of bluegrass artists. Jen Gunderman, who plays with Cheryl uh, Crow and and uh, um, many artists. Fats Kaplan, who was in John Prine's band. The track is called Secret Language, and it was with all those folks in Nashville.
gorgeous, isn't it? Tell me, Laura, being being an artist, it's not an easy ride. I, I wonder, yeah, as you're looking back at 20 years here, whether you ever have any regret about giving up that day job working in Wall Street, being at the heart of banking, or or, or would you not change a minute of it? You know, I um, recently went to a friend's 40th birthday party, and they asked everyone to go around the room and say, you know, what uh, folks who'd already past the milestone of 40, <laughs> what they, um, you know, what advice could you give or what could you tell the um, newly <laughs> initiated 40-year-old, you know, what they were in for. And I was so happy to be able to say, like, you know, you get more comfortable as you go along with the choices that you've made, some things that you fretted about in advance and or seemed like they didn't make sense in your life. You start to worry less about, you know, is my story improbable? (laughs) Did I do this the hard way? Um, You know, after a while, you're like, this is just the way it happened. You know, it's the way I did it. It it, it took what it took. Um, You know, I will say I did go back to work, um, you know, in that period uh, that you asked about before, where have I been? I did, um, you know, realizing, especially in the last couple of years that we have a kid who's going to go to college soon. you know, spent some time back in the in the ranks of the working uh, workforce in New York City. And that also helped, you know, me get organized to make these recordings and be able to do it in the way I wanted to do it, along with the crowdfunding. And all of this is coming together because you're coming back to the UK uh, on tour. I think we can we can safely say that the UK has been very kind to you from, uh, it was John Peel, wasn't it, who, who cited Not the Trembling Kind as, as one of his all-time favourite albums, if not his favourite all-time album. Um, also the country which finally helped you to understand why New Order are so amazing. I think you had that epiphany here as well. You've got a close affinity with us here, haven't you? Absolutely do. I absolutely do. Um, I've had wonderful experiences getting to um, start my career, really, um, coming to the UK, uh, both starting off in Glasgow and then having those, um, again, those early happy accidents of having Peel discover my music and then Bob Harris be such a supporter and the BBC in general be supportive and then really connecting with what I think of as like a kind of counterpart to what is the Americana audience in the US, but what I would call the UK folk and kind of country audience. Maybe they maybe now they would say Americana in some there. I know there's an Americana UK association, um, but, uh, you know, just to, the, that broader um, idea of like there's an audience that that the, the similarities and the simpaticos between British folk music, American folk music, and and the offshoots of both of those things, whether they are commercial or not, you know, and has the ears to, to hear the um, sort of threads from both, uh, you know, the continuity between both musics. Um, and so that's been a wonderful part of my, uh, you know, career and, and my experience as playing music is being able to to find that that audience and to kind of hone a performing point of view, um, you know, in front of the UK audience too. So I'm very excited to come back and um, we're really looking forward to all of the shows we have coming up. And that's it for episode two. A big thank you to Ollie, Ragu, Harriet and Laura for truly great artists, all of whom would love to see you at the Stables and the festival in June and July. Stables.org for all ticket information and you can follow Stables MK on all social media platforms. 
As I said earlier, if you are enjoying this, please let us know on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And don't forget to follow the series on your podcast app so you'll be the first to hear about new episodes. And please, if you have a moment, leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help get the word out. Next month, we'll also look ahead to F. Milton Keynes International Festival, curated by the stables and bringing the very best of world-class arts to the heart of Milton Keynes. Thanks for spending this hour or so listening to Turn Up The Volume and I really hope it inspires you to come and enjoy the artists we heard from. I'll speak to you next time, but for now, from Turn Up The Volume, from the stables in Milton Keynes, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye.